Hello, my name's Mark Muller-Stewart and this is the Beyond Borders Scotland podcast, where ideas enlighten. This week, Beyond Borders joins forces with the Rennie Cassin Foundation to bring you a talk it held in London three weeks ago between human rights campaigner and founding patron of Beyond Borders, Baroness Helena Kennedy, and Philip Sands, the director of the Centre on International Courts and Tribunals at University College London and author of the internationally celebrated and truly mesmerising book East-West Street, a compelling family memoir that explores the origins of the laws against genocide and crimes of humanity through the lives of two remarkable Nuremberg prosecutors, Hirsch Lauterpach and Raphael Lemkin. For those that don't know, René Cassin was a French-Jewish jurist who co-drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, while his foundation, led by the inspirational Mia Hassenson, Gross and Daniel Silverstone, today seek to protect and promote the universal rights of all people by drawing on Jewish experiences and values, including the legacy of the Holocaust. There could then be no more of an appropriate venue in which to hold this talk. We join it after Helena thanks the Foundation staff for their work and welcomes also a cohort of her own so-called boys and girls who have worked with her at Doughty Street Chambers and the Bar over the years. A group that I'm happy and honoured to belong to. We hope you enjoy the talk. In this room, let me tell you, there are a whole lot of people that have, uh, one way or another, worked with me, either at the bar. Some of my boys are here. I can see them. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and indeed, a whole set of women that have worked with me. Um, uh, uh, and I am thrilled to see them here tonight. Um, I... I I, I was once asked if you had to, to, you know, one of those dinner party questions that you're asked, you know, who would you like to have at a dinner party? And uh, I said, in answer to it, is, is I would have liked to have been at a particular dinner party. And the dinner party that I always say that I would have liked to have been at was the one where Eleanor Roosevelt drew together for the first meeting. Um, where she had, uh, uh, she had a flat, her husband had died, she had an apartment in Washington Square, and she gathered together jurists from all around the world, of whom, of course, René Cassin was one, and she brought them together. And the question that she was posing to them was, how can we have world law to, to prevent the horrors of the Holocaust ever happening again? I mean, that was really the question that she was asking. And what people said was you know, creating world law is not, is not going to be an easy one because law generates from the very, you know, the subsoil of our communities. It, it, it comes out of our histories. It comes out of uh, our practices and often with religious roots and so on. And they said you, you can't distance, you can't create law that isn't somehow in, in keeping with all of that. And so what they decided in their discussions was that they would create a template a template of values that should inform every legal system in the world. And, and that they would then go forward trying to persuade countries to make that set of values, the, a set of values that would inform how judges made their decisions and so on. And, uh, and so that's the dinner party that we would all have wanted to be at because the conversations, I think, must have been incredibly stimulating. And, uh, and, and people were there from every tradition and uh, and and 
you know, it just was an incredible thing to have set themselves, and for very good reason, because of the full horrors. And, you know, sometimes there are moments when I think the Universal Declaration needs some repairing, our commitment to human rights needs repairing, and yet I fear that to do so at this moment in time in our world, when, uh, when that commitment seems more fragile, I, I feel that we should really stick to what we have and try and enrich it. Um, and you are one of the people who's in the business of doing that, Philippe Sands. And so I just wanted to talk to you about um, the thing that generated, the thing that generated the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was, of course, the, the horrors of the Holocaust and then the business of the, the Nuremberg trials. And only recently you've been calling again for the setting up of a, a tribunal to, to deal with the, the crime uh, of aggression, a crime against peace. And I just wanted to raise that with you because um, we can't, the conversation tonight has to be about the state of our world and the horrors that are happening currently in Israel, have just happened in Israel, have just, uh, the, the, war, the, the following onslaught afterwards, um, the whole business of uh, what's been happening in Ukraine, the, the, the election just now in, in Holland, and um, where we're seeing the rise of fascism, really, and, uh, and the, the threat that has to this whole value system that you've written so powerfully about. So, well, first off, it's incredibly nice to be here with you, Malena, and I echo everything that you say about this wonderful institution and, and Mia's work, and please support the René Casson organisation, because they really need your Great support. Work. This is an incredibly delicate, delicate moment, and just joining up and making numbers up really matters and really makes a difference. So, it is obviously an incredibly difficult in the world, I think we all understand that. You understand that, Danny understands that, I understand that. And what I find helpful is actually going back to that earlier period. Um, and that earlier period was pretty bad. And I really draw inspiration from some of the characters who emerged from that period, and particularly from Lauterpacht and Lenkin, what I had heard of but I didn't really know much about when I embarked on the research that became East-West Street. And in particular, what strikes me as so inspiring is that at a point in 1945, when they had literally lost every member of their family, instead of going off into a corner, curling up and weeping, which would have been a perfectly understandable sentiment, they said, no, we have ideas. And we're going to take those ideas and we're going to see if we can transform the world. And they did transform the world. I mean, it is pretty extraordinary when you imagine. But many of the events that I go to, people are sort of amazed that these concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity did were you? only invented 75 years ago. People think, oh, my God, that's just existed forever and ever and ever. They haven't. They're totally new inventions. And, and in a sense, that imposes a note of realism about where we are. What happened in 1945 was huge, and it was revolutionary. It basically said the sovereign is no longer, the power of the sovereign is no longer absolute. There are limits. And those limits include 
the rights of individuals, the human rights model of Lao Pact, crimes against humanity, Lao Pact, and the rights of groups, the model of Lemkin. And we're going to set that in stone, and we can come back and talk about how that was actually achieved between 45 and 48. I mean, you know, 9th, 10th, 11th December are very important dates because simultaneously the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, individual rights, and genocide group rights were adopted on the same day in a meeting in Paris. So that moment was hugely significant. It's recent. You know as well as anyone that simply adopting rules and laws does not have the effect of causing everyone to suddenly go, oh, okay, I'm just going to behave myself now. Stop doing one of those things that I've done. I mean, we've had it with so many of the issues you've written about. There have been laws on the statute books for decades and more on rape, on murder. It hasn't stopped. It goes on. And, and, and discrimination and various other things. So I think at this moment, and it's, I'm sort of echoing what you're saying, it is about... Supporting that 1945 moment. It's not about creating vast new mechanisms and arrangements. It's about recognizing that what happened at that moment was transformative, was revolutionary, and it needs to be protected and it needs to be safeguarded from anyone who wants to tear it down. And that at this moment seems like a very difficult thing to be batting for. But I would say to you, look, I mean, just in my own life doing international law issues for the last 30 years, I see a lot of really horrible things around the world, and what's happened now is really, really horrible. But it's not a new level of horribleness, I'm afraid. It's been a real struggle for decades, ever since 1945. And we just have to plough on and keep going with the message and reinforcing the support, because the alternative is a, a world without law, a world in which I think people like Gert Builders, who you've mentioned, and the character, the new character in Argentina, who's just been elected, they simply want to tear it down. And frankly, a lot of the problems start at home. Let's look at Rwanda. Let's look. I mean, what does it mean to have a government that is committed to overturning by primary legislation a unanimous ruling of the Supreme Court that Rwanda is not a safe country to send people to. The proposal is to legislate by primary legislation that Rwanda is, in fact, a safe country. So what? The next thing is they legislate that smoking is good for you. Climate change isn't happening. I mean, pause and ask yourself for a moment what state we have got into that that is what we can prepare. So we just have to hunker down. Alternative facts. We heard, do you remember the, do you remember the woman who was uh, uh, Trump's uh, um, um, P PR person? And she said, um, well, we just have alternative facts. And, uh, and, uh, and so we've got uh, some alternative facts operating now. You know. um, but, uh, but one of the things that I feel alarmed about is that, I mean, the narrative is very clear. 
um, that we've seen, we're seeing the rise of uh, populist nationalisms all, all, all over the globe, actually. And I think it is, I personally think it is a response to um, a, a sense of powerlessness amongst people. So they retreat into nationalisms because, because so much seems to, tra tra you know, cross borders. So much power seems to be elsewhere. How do you have any kind of uh, grasp on, on, those who have power and so you want to hunker down into into the nation state as being the place that you belong to um, and uh, and to kick against the idea of them possibly even being international courts or that the, that you might be held to account for, for things and so um, and it, it follows always a very uh, traditional route which is that you know it starts with you you don't want to have an opposition you kind of try to crush the, your opponents and we see Putin doing it and we see people doing it and then you try to uh, uh, um, uh, silence the journalists who write about uh, um, uh, uh, corruption or the ways in which um, abuses of human rights are taking place. You go after the journalists, you go after the media, you try and capture the media. You no longer have Pravda quite that way, but you get your friends to buy up the media and do it that way. Um, you try and capture the judiciary, you condemn the judiciary, you accuse it of bias and so on, so it needs to be reformed, and then you try and capture it. And then you... Uh, uh, also go after the lawyers and the, the, who do the cases acting for the journalists and so on. And it seems to be a kind of clear trajectory and I could take you through countries around the world and point to it actually happening in a very clear way. And, uh, and that, that thing I think is locked into I think a number of serious issues which are around a combination of um, deepening gulfs between the very rich and, uh, and ordinary folk. And it doesn't have to be the poor, I mean, just everybody else. And, uh, and the, uh, the ways in which people feel um, they don't have very direct access to where power actually lies. And the other thing, which is, you know, the arrival of technological ways of actually having a, a kind of megaphone for some of the ugliest uh, of, of attitudes and views. And, and there probably isn't anyone in this room who doesn't know of that, the ways in which, you know, people are trolled, um, people are, are threatened, and, uh, and, you know, particularly women, um, the hideous ways in which uh, um, social media is, is used to very wicked purposes. And so I, I, I feel it's a moment where we've got to be conscious of all of that. Um, and, and we have to rest, restrain ourselves from condemning um, law every term, although law can be used for very bad purposes, as we know. But we have to speak to the better parts of law. And human rights most certainly is one of the better parts of law. And, uh, and we, we can't let the Human Rights Act, for example, be attacked. Um, and, uh, and see it diminished, or the European Convention on Human Rights, which was a translation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights into something that would have purchased in uh, European nations. Um, I mean, if we, if we start going down that road, we, I feel even more fearful. But uh, well, I think what's interesting, and so to put a slightly optimistic... Oh, be optimistic, go on, I like that in you. Personally, I try to find the... Firstly, if you look at the history of the development of the international legal order and the rules-based system, I mean, it follows a particular pattern. There's a moment of creation, then there's consolidation, then there's a catastrophe, then there's a rebuilding. The rebuilding always follows on from what came before and builds on what came from before. 
then it consolidates, then it collapses, then it's... And I think we're in a moment where plainly things are very much under threat right now. And in part, I think that has been able to happen in the European context because the generation that experienced what happened mm. in the 30s and the 40s is leaving the table. And that has left a gap. And the current generation and leadership doesn't understand, I think, fully what it is we're capable of doing to each other and to ourselves. And so they're allowing, allowing us to slide into a bad place. And I think the next years are going to be very difficult. I'm not optimistic in the short term. I think, you know, you and I have talked about this before. I'm very, very pessimistic about the short to medium term. But it will then be followed by a period of regrowth and rebirth and rebuilding. And as I said, my own sense, if you go back in the world that I occupy, that period of regrowth and rebuilding always takes what came before. So I don't for a moment think suddenly human rights is all out the window, it's gone forever, and that's, that's, not, that's not what's happening. And there are many, many examples that you find of actors, of courts, domestic, international, of legisl legislatures, actually defending the model that was created in 1945. And you, I never answered your question about what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. But that is a case in point. When I wrote that article... This was an article which uh, um, uh, Philippe wrote in the Financial Times within, within days of, uh, of uh, Russia's invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. Um, I think they phoned you and said, what do you make of all of this? And then you yeah, said they, to... They got in touch because they asked me to write 700 words on Ukraine and international law because I happen to be an international lawyer and because I'd spent time in Ukraine and I'd written East West Street. And so I asked myself what actually would be the useful thing to do. And there was a gap in the architecture of the international legal order. And the gap was that the international institutions did not have judicial competence in relation to the crime of aggression, waging an illegal war. And so the piece that I wrote was, look, crimes against humanity, genocide, war crimes, that will be dealt with by the ICC, in the Hague, the International Criminal Court. There is a gap, and that gap has existed for 75 years. It's time to fill that gap. <laughs> Normally, when you write op-eds, as you know, there's a little frisson of about nine and a half people for a day. <laughs> and then it just disappears into nothingness, and that's it. Um, but this didn't happen in that case. And a whole raft of people got in touch within this country, across the political spectrum, you know, from former British Prime Minister to the current Attorney General, and said, no, this is really important. We need to do something about this. The Ukrainians got in touch. Other heads of state, political leaders got in touch. And out of that, ideas began to grow. And right now... You know, we are on the cusp of creating a special criminal tribunal for the crime of aggression, the first time since 1945. Now, there are lessons in this because there is a, a, a sort of a deadlock between two competing visions of what sort of international court for the crime of aggression do we want in relation to Ukraine and Russia. And there are the small and medium-sized powers who basically want a full-on, full-scale international court. And then there is Britain, France, and the United States, which says to itself, huh, really, do we really want to do this? I mean, if we create a special criminal tribunal for one permanent member of the Security Council today, why can't we do one for us 
tomorrow. And the elephant in the room is Ukraine, is, is Iraq, because Iraq was manifestly illegal and as illegal, frankly, as the war in Ukraine. We allowed it to happen and there's never been any comeback. And, you know, we're paying a political price, but no one's paying a legal price. In fact, you know, the proponents of that war, you know, flounce around the world, make vast sums of money giving lectures and offer themselves up as mediators in this current conflict now in relation to Israel and Hamas. So we need to be honest about Hamas. No, of course, and, 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 and we've seen it um, um, in enough, a number of other areas as well as on Ukraine um, where you know, uh, we sign up to international treaties and, uh, and the hypocrisy of, of wanting to tear up our Brexit deal, I mean, in relation to the problems that were arising over Northern Ireland because Boris lied to the, to the DUP about what, we, what the deal was going to mean for them and then suddenly they realised that actually they were going to have to do an awful lot of paperwork and, and a lot of, of claiming and, you know, and it was going to be a very difficult process um, and uh, and so suddenly there were problems and they were prepared to tear up international their international treaty obligations <coughs> on that it became very difficult for me saying to them um, you're uh, uh, look what you're doing in Hong Kong, what you know, the Chinese are doing in Hong Kong, and criticising the Chinese for what they're doing, because, of course, they broke the Sino-British treaty that was created, which they said they were going to, to respect the culture and the rule of law and the way of being that existed in Hong Kong, and they were breaching that. But you can hardly call them out for doing it when you yourself are breaching international law. You know, I mean, you, you, you've got to... You know, you can't speak with forked tongue on, on tongues on these things. So, so that let's put the issue right on the table of some of the situations that we face right now. So, the events of the seventh of October happened. They were for me very triggering and very shocking because they offered accounts and stories and images that were very familiar to me from the kinds of pogroms that Lemkin described. If you go back to his own writings, if you read his own memoir, you'll. You'll see as a kid the kind of thing that inspired him. It looked incredibly similar to me to what Einsatzgruppen did going around Central and Eastern Europe. And I come from a family, you know, that lived through that experience. So I have to say personally, it was an incredibly shocking day and period, and I'm still digesting what happened. Equally, however, I have a commitment to the idea of the rule of law. And when a few days after the terrible events of the 7th of October happened, a little group of us came together and said, well, what do we do about this? Do we remain silent? Do we react? Do we, what is our role in society? Whatever we do, we're going to be attacked. We're going to be attacked for remaining silent. We're going to be attacked for saying something, the wrong thing in the eyes of some people. But we have to stick... To, to what we believe is important. And, and for me, what is important? And I thought back <coughs> to Lauterkatum Lenkin. I asked myself the question, what would they have done? What would they care about at this particular moment in time? And so when a very small group of us, just three actually, wrote another piece for the Financial Times about 10 days after those terrible events, we settled on three simple but what had happened on the 7th of October was an atrocity and the worst of crimes and had to be condemned as such, no ifs and buts. Secondly, we 
recognize the point that Israel has the right to defend itself against those attacks in accordance with international law. Some people say, oh no, Israel doesn't have the right of self-defense. Well, that's just plain wrong. After 9-11, and this is a parallel to 9-11, and I was in New York on September the 11th, so I lived through that and it left a profound impact, I can tell you, with one of our three children. She was one year old at the time. The Security Council passed a resolution saying, in terms, the United States has the right of self-defense even if the attack was launched by a non-state actor, al-Qaeda. So that debate, that, there's no question, it doesn't matter whether you're attacked by a state or a non-state actor, there is an inherent right of self-defense in international law. And that was our second point, not universally accepted in the international law community. Point number three, and this is where it became delicate, we had a sense of where this was going. We had a sense of what was coming. And of course, our sense has come to pass. There was going to be a massive use of military force. And we felt it was important to signal, yes, there was a right to use force. But the use of that force must be within the bounds of the law. There are rules in terms of targeting civilians, in terms of distinguishing between certain um, facilities. And the simple point that we wish to make was you've got to inscribe the response within a rule of law framework and model. Interestingly, there wasn't a huge outcry and a huge attack mm. for simply making that point. And I thought that was interesting. I think we were made safer and more secure by the identity of one of the eight people who was willing to sign that letter. It was incredibly difficult to find people to sign even a letter that said that. I can tell you, we spent several days looking for people to sign so simple. Well, you were all Jew Jewish all lawyers. Jewish lawyers, and yeah. so that was why we didn't come to you. As an honorary Jewish lawyer. I'm an honorary we Jewish lawyer. <laughs> yeah. So that, because we began it by saying we are British Jewish lawyers, that, that was what we, so that's why we didn't come to you. But it was really astonishing who refused to sign you know, it's too early, or it goes too much this way, or it goes too much that way. Fine, I respect all of those views, like, completely. It's a very personal thing about what one does and when one does it. But one of the people who signed it was the former president of the Supreme Court of this country. And that really was a courageous thing to do. And it meant a great deal to those of us who'd agonised over what we should write, how we should write it, what's the right thing to say. And I think that gave us a lot of protection and security. And we know what happened with the short statement that was written by Richard Hermer, Danny Freeman, myself and, and the five others who signed it. It went right to the top in all countries. It went to Biden, it went to Sunak, it went everywhere. Because it was a statement, in a sense, of the most basic propositions drawn from the experience of Lauterpacht in 1944 and 1945. They were against retribution. They were against punishment. They were against mass killings, despite having each of them their parents, their brothers, their sisters, their cousins, their nephews, because, and this is what is so remarkable about those two characters, and I often imagine the moment, I'm not I mean, I'm occasionally a criminal lawyer in international courts. You're a real criminal lawyer. But imagine 
doing a case. Lao Japan prosecuting for the British. Lenkin prosecuting for the American, the Americans. They're prosecuting Hans Frank, Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer from 1928 to 1933. And when the trial begins at Nuremberg on the 20th of November, 1945, they do not know the fate of their families. They do not know that the man they are prosecuting is responsible for the deaths of their entire families. They only find that out in the summer of 1946. They don't give up. They both write, carry on writing their drafts and doing their stuff. And that, for me, is the kind of model in these most difficult of times one has to strive for. I go back to a famous moment in 1947, I was actually on the radio a couple of days ago, it was mentioned again, extraordinary telegram sent by George Kennan, the American diplomat, posted to Moscow in 1947, writes back to the Department of State in Washington. And what does he say? It says, the greatest danger we face is that we become like those who seek to destroy us. That is my guiding light in all of this. However impossibly, brutally, painfully difficult it is, that is the Lauterpacht-Lemkin model. That is the George Kennan model. And however difficult it is, my feeling is we have to stick to that. It's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great message to us, because it, it's because so hard. It's difficult it's because really it's so difficult. so hard, uh, and you can understand the visceral uh, feelings that people have. I have to tell you that I, um, uh, uh, the the three mothers who came to London, uh, whose children uh, were still at that point um, hostages um, in Gaza, they were it was they were so amazing. Um, in, I mean, their pain was, you could feel it in the air, you know, um, but, oh my God, were they impressive, impressive people um, who still believed that the pursuit of peace is the most important thing to, to do. It was, it was, I can't begin to tell you how moving that was. And, um, you know, um, I, and, and so I was there a, a week ago on the anti-Semitism march because they were in my mind, they were in my heads, uh, head, you know, that we have to make sure that on all fronts that we're, that we're dealing with this, um, but while at the same time holding on to the importance of law because, because of having to be better than our worst instincts. I mean, there was also the, one of the, there's very, there's very little bits of this that you think, oh, thank God for that. But there was that amazing moment when that older lady, I forget her name, was released. The, I think one of the first hostages to be released. And, and she held out her hand and just said to the Hamas guy, shut up. And it was, it was I don't know, you know, it was an incredibly powerful moment. We know that at the end of the day, 
the ability of military might alone to impose a solution is unlikely or it's not going to happen. This didn't happen in Congo, it didn't happen in Yugoslavia, it didn't happen in Rwanda, it didn't happen in, you know, it's not going to happen in Ukraine, it's not going to happen in Israel and, and Gaza. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are the alternative ways? And that's a very difficult question to ask oneself when you're in the midst of something like you. I mean, we have a couple of colleagues at UCL whose kids are hostages right now. And I've talked to those parents and it's deeply, deeply affecting. But equally, I'm talking to people on the Palestinian side who have lost children, entire families, you know, who've been bombed into obliteration, who have nothing to do with all this, who've lived their lives under incredibly difficult circumstances. And we ask ourselves, what is the balance between a political model, a military model, a legal model, and of course it's a bit of everything in the end. But at this particular moment, the rule of law model is a difficult one for some people to put their backs to when there is so much hurt and so much grief and so much anger. But don't forget that it exists on all sides. It exists equally on the other side. And so the alternative model proclaimed by a couple of your colleagues in the House of Lords, that there's no limits to what basically either side can do. That was what their letter to the Times said. People can do whatever they want in these circumstances. That's basically what they're saying. And that cannot be right. And that was not the model that was articulated. At the end of 1945, there was a tremendous desire for retribution. You, you, you remember that. My second book dealt with it, in fact, the rat line, dealt in part with the question of retribution. And there was retribution. Plainly, there were acts of killing that were retributive. But they were essentially limited and isolated. But it's tough. It's really tough. I... I wanted to raise um, an issue which um, Maya and I have been concerned about, which is that in all conflicts, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the experience of women, I mean, it's been the nature of law, the absence of women's voices in the creation of law, um, has meant that law often does fails to deliver justice for women. And, uh, and we have to keep hold of this business, which is that in amongst this, we're, we're talking about the pursuit of justice. And it is a visceral thing that people feel and from childhood of knowing what's not fair, what's not right, what's not just. And, um, and uh, it, it, is, it has been pointed, I'm at the moment of issuing a statement around the business of um, how in conflict, uh, the violence that is experienced by women is so often different and it's almost invariably sexualized and involves brutal uh, uh, sexual violation. And yet, this, the, is the unwillingness to talk about that, about sensitivities, about um, um, discussing um, uh, matters sexual, or is it about uh, not believing women still somewhere in the ether, or is it about... Uh, um, the shame that's associated with being at the receiving end of sexual brutality still lives on and can scar 
the recipient of it and her reputation for life because, because she has been the, the person at the receiving end of unwelcome sexual viol violations. I mean, what is it that, that has created a silence around the, the, the very fact that women were uh, raped in the course of the 7th October events? And it, and, it, and it really is, it tells you something about the, the nature of our society still. And I have absolutely no doubt that, as far as I'm concerned, that the business of Hamas is that you're dealing with a profoundly misogynistic um, organisation. This is an organisation, you, you know, where uh, the position of women, where are the women in, 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 in any of their leadership? Where are the women? And, and we know that, that um, if one's to talk about having, uh, they're, they're being created some sort of state, I certainly would feel <laughs> this was not how I would want to see a state con constructed. Um, uh, where the kind of value system is does place a, a, a sort of second-class citizenship or place on the shoulders of women. Well, I think most people in this room will know that there is probably not a single person in this country who's done more for transforming our understanding of this issue than you, and with coming your writings oh, there's been your many book, people. Eva's framed had a profound impact on me. I happen to live in a household with a strong partner, female, and two strong female daughters. And so this is very much part of what our daily life is about. It's endemic. I've just spent two days, I sit, I have a, a sort of part-time position. You, you don't know anything, well, that's, that sounds like that's... No, it's still going. Is that okay. going? Just, yeah, I think that's gone, hasn't it? It's gone. It's gone, oh, here, you yeah. take this one. Okay. Maybe I pulled it out. Maybe I pulled it out accidentally. <laughs> Push it back in. Is that really? um, oh, there we are. Uh, uh, it's yours. You're multitasking. Yes. <laughs> well, so I've just come. Like, so I sit on a body called the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and that is based in Lausanne, and it deals with lots of things, not as nasty as what we've just been talking about, but it's plain that there is an issue in sport in relation to the treatment of women. And mm. so the annual symposium of the Court of Arbitration for Sport last Thursday and Friday in Geneva was sport and human rights. And the entire second day was devoted sure. to women. And the absence and the, of women. And, well, the mistreatment uh, of women in the sporting world. And the standout presentation of the entire event was a Mexican lady who is a former gymnast, Olympic gymnast, who now heads the International Olympic Committee's task force on rooting out misogyny, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, rape by trainers, which everyone is too frightened to talk about. <coughs> and one of the issues that came up in the course of that is how you deal with it when you're sitting on a Court of Arbitration for Sport panel of three, which is what I do as a judge on the panel. And I explain that in most of the panels, I sit only with men. Yeah. I've almost never sat with women. How can you expect an 18-year-old female athlete faced with a tribunal 
of three old Well, guys. you've got to tell them. No, I did tell them. I did. I did. Yes, I did tell them. That's what I'm coming to. I'm coming to. I said, Elena Kennedy in London says, we've all got to go. And, I mean, we're, we're joking a little bit, but there's a really big issue there. In international law, the issue of rape as an international crime only got traction when we started having women judges. Navi Pillay, who you know very yes. well, became a judge on the Yugoslav tribunals and the Rwanda tribunals. And she introduced the idea that in certain circumstances, as recently as 1998, so very recently, that the act of rape could be characterized as an act of genocide. Because the act of rape is often motivated by the belief, this was the case of the Yazidis, for example, that when you rape a young woman, that young woman is forever considered to be unclean, quote unquote, and will not therefore be able to have children within the community because no one will have her. That argument ran, and Navi Pillay introduced it. It hasn't got universal traction, it hasn't gone as far as it should go, but it is a huge change that has taken place. And it has taken place in part because of the human rights revolution, which says it is totally unacceptable to have panels of judges and arbitrators and composed solely of men and a system of rules which does not take into account the reality of sex and sex-related crimes. So there is a change that is taking place. I know that, there, I know that there's a willingness, but that what you have to do is that you have to then be looking for appropriate women to bring onto them. You see, arbitration, by and large, uh, has developed out of the of commercial law, and, and it's not an area in which um, there are great numbers of women uh, yet. And, and so uh, they should be actually saying, if we want women in arbitration, um, then we should be looking for some of the women who have been practicing in the family courts, in the criminal courts, in other courts, but who understand discrimination, understand the ways in which uh, abuse of, uh, uh, abuses of power can take place inside all manner of institutions. And you don't have to have commercial lawyers to do that. In fact, sometimes commercial lawyers might not be the best people. But, but most arbitrators and <coughs> arbitration panels come from a, a more civil law. Actually, in, in the sports world, that, that's really changing. You would have been amazed at who was at this sort of mm. congress out of 400 people. I mean, when I went 10 years ago, there would have been you know, 15 women. Mm. Now it's up to 25, 30%, and it's plainly growing because everyone's, everyone has understood. But also, I think, a lot of the men have become sensitized. I mean, I told a story of a case that I had, and, and you may ask yourself, why are we talking about this with Rene Kassan? Well, sport is a really big part of a lot of people's lives. Mm. And until... Well, this was the first time the Court of Arbitration for Sport had ever addressed the issue of sports and human rights. And talk about a place where human rights can make a real difference. It's in the daily life of sports, which hundreds of millions of people and women, young women in particular, are involved in every single day. And we're living through a very big change that is taking place now. And that is in part a consequence of what happened in 1945. 
I want us to um, unpick the business about courts. You see, the, the idea of international courts was really because um, one was rec recognising that you know, the idea of what goes on inside your own country shouldn't be looked at by anybody else. I recently had a, a, a meeting with some young Chinese sort of people who were in Britain to do sort of postgraduate work. And, uh, and they came and met with me and, uh, and some of them said to me, yours to be criticising what happens in China. You know, you wouldn't have liked it if we had uh, uh, um, interfered when um, you were having the troubles in Northern Ireland. And I said, you'd have been very welcome to, to, to <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, to have uh, uh, commented on, the, on what was going on, um, some of the bad stuff that went on in relation to um, the treatment and the discrimination against the Catholic community in Northern Ireland over so long. And, uh, and, we have to have scrutiny from outside. I mean, that's how you open up, uh, you know, bring fresh air into places that have become closed down. And um, it, it was interesting that they did have this belief, which is, it's none of your business. What, what we do internally inside a nation state is our own business. And so, the, the, and, the, and it's for that reason, of course, we know that m most of the sort of larger powers do not want scrutiny from international courts. The United States does not want to. And domestic courts. You know, well, I mean, they don't want scrutiny even from domestic courts, but they, but I mean, look at the fact that, 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 that um, uh, you know, on any of these issues, like genocide, you would need to, you know, the Security Council has to become involved, and Russia and China will always uh, close the doors on any possibility of, um, of uh, uh, prosecutions of that kind, because they, they wouldn't want it to happen to them. And then the same thing happens about the International Criminal Court. You know, a, a lot of the, the, the countries one would have thought should have signed up for it, um, the United States has still never signed up to the International Criminal Court streaming because they don't want their um, uh, um, people to be put on trial. So there, there are difficulties about the business of scrutiny from outside, having a, a, a court above. What's the answer to that problem? Well, I think we're, li we're living through a particularly difficult moment here in the United Kingdom. Some of you will know that the, the last book that I wrote, yes, that she's having conniptions reading it late at night in her bedroom and getting very agitated. My last book was about a British story that nobody knows about. Probably most of you in this room have never heard of it. Britain, in between 1968 and 1973, forcibly removed the entire population of the Chagos archipelago in order to make way for a US military base. And those folks want to go back. Human Rights Watch, a few months ago, characterized treatment of these people, this community, all black, all descendants of enslaved people, as a crime against humanity. Unbelievably, that was the first time in the history of Human Rights Watch that they had laid a charge of crimes against humanity against Britain or the United States. What happened in that case? The International Court of Justice in 2019, in February, handed down an advisory opinion saying, Mauritius had a right of self-determination. The Chagos Archipelago was wrongfully separated from its territory when it obtained independence in the mid-1960s. And as a consequence of that, everything that had happened subsequently was unlawful. What did the British government do? It stuck two fingers up at the decision. It said, oh, it's not binding. We don't have to follow this. We're going to just tough it out. National security is much more important. Blah, blah, blah. And at the very same time, 
the British ambassador, permanent representative in New York, defending a massive loss in various resolutions, stands up and says, we believe in self-determination. Hmm. Pause for the people of the Falkland Islands. So what was she heard to be saying? She was heard to be saying, it's one rule for black people. It's another rule for white people. I'm not starry-eyed about the International Criminal Court until very recently, every single person indicted for the International Criminal was black. Court was black. Okay? Black people do not have a monopoly on international criminality. There was no investigation of torture in Afghanistan, despite the fact that Afghanistan was a party to the International Criminal Court statute since 2002. And everything that happened at Bagram Air Base, the horrors that happened, you know some of the photographs, were within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. What did it do? Nothing. That sense of double standard is palpable. And if you go around the world and ask yourself the question about the state of international law, you're going to get very different perspectives. I happen to do work for a lot of countries in the global south, in South America, in Africa, and in Asia. I can tell you their views about the double standard and hypocrisy of the British and Americans are very hard to resist because we don't have a tremendous track record in submitting ourselves some of these rules. And right now, right now, we're getting to a situation where I think we are well on the cusp. The, ne the next election, the Conservative Party may well include in its manifesto leaving the European Convention on Human Rights. And so we change, the, you raised the subject of international courts. When I studied international law, for the first time in 1982-83 with Elie Lauterpacht, the son of Hirsch Lauterpacht. Mm -hmm. Britain had a judge on every international court. Oh, yeah. Today, we are left with basically two. Two. One on the International Criminal Court. We've lost the International Court of Justice. We've lost the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea and various others. And one at the European Court of Human Rights. And Suella Braverman, and her ilk want to leave the European Convention on Human Rights. And so we'd have no judge there either. And I can tell you that British judges and British advocates are really appreciated in these international courts, not because they're brilliant or this or that or the other. No, they are. They are. <laughs> but because they bring to the proceedings a deep sense of a commitment to impartiality integrity and the application of the rule of law without fear or favour. And that is being taken out of the system. A European Court of Justice in Luxembourg without a British judge or without a British advocate general is not as powerful a place. It's as simple as that. And we are slowly withdrawing from the world that we helped to create in 1945. So if René Cassin is going to put energy into whole range of efforts, as okay. you know very well, it starts at home. Yes. It's a no, real problem. I, I'm getting the nod from the chairman uh, <laughs> that we should move to questions, but I want to say that, Philippe, that was really, really interesting. Thank you so much.